0: This is A Diet of Brussels. As promised, we're bringing you a series of interviews that we did uh, at the uh, UASIS annual conference in September, 2023. First up, you're gonna hear David speaking with Simon Sweeney, who's reader in International Political Economy and Business at the University of York. Simon's uh, done a lot of work on relations between the UK and the EU in the field of security and defense. As you're about to hear, it's something that he's been working on since his doctoral work. It amuses me to remember when I first applied from York St John actually to do a PhD at Leeds, and the supervisor asked me why Why do you want to do research in this area?" And I said, "Well, because there's nothing more important than peace and war," and I've kind of hung on to that position really. So in an organization like UACs I've I've uh, really enjoyed the multidisciplinary and broad um, range of topics but also through UACs and then through British International Studies Association I've been part of security, security and defence working groups and have uh, f- um, published in this field also for UK and a changing Europe so my interest in security and defence is pretty long established
1: and as we pivot to that question then, I mean, firstly, when we look back on those negotiations on the WA and obviously more so to the TCA, I mean, do we think, or do you think, that there was a missed opportunity by both the EU and the UK to perhaps agree some degree of a pathway in terms of collaboration, not a formal relationship, but more so a pathway?
0: Um, yes, I, I think it was a missed opportunity, but I think it was a missed opportunity by by the UK, not by the European Union. I think the European Union was always open to um, uh, a more formal arrangement with the UK. Uh, but it was made clear right from the outset in the withdrawal agreement and, and subsequently, uh, particularly under Johnson, that this that Johnson this this was not going to be an area that the UK wanted a formal arrangement. So it was the UK that walked away. Uh, you could say that the UK had begun a, f- a sort of a loosening of its security relationship with with um, the European Union even before the referendum, because the UK participation in uh, Common Security and Defence Policy began to diminish after twenty ten. It was still there; we were we were a partner within CSDP, but. Um, uh, commitment seemed to taper off, and and that was kind of ironic because the original uh, impetus for European security and defence policy came from Tony Blair and and Chirac uh, in in the Samara Declaration in ni- uh, nineteen ninety eight. So 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 it 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 was um, a backing off by the UK as far as CSDP was concerned. Uh, I say after 2010 under the coalition government in, in London but specifically after the referendum the UK London made it very clear they didn't want a formal relationship and I, I certainly think it was a missed opportunity because the interests of the UK and the EU are so closely aligned I mean, across the whole gamut of security and defence, cyber security included there's not a cigarette paper between the interests of the two.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you think that the invasion, however, has changed, that the invasion of the Ukraine in terms of opening areas of, of, of in terms of collaboration, where do you see those specific areas? Perhaps maybe some degree of defence projects, and then the ETA, with some degree in terms of the trade and cooperation agreement at the time, that there may be some willingness to collaborate and some very vague language, and the, then the, you mentioned jo- uh, the, Johnson's as well, and that administration security agreement with Sweden and Finland. Yeah.
0: The, well, the TCA left out security and defence substantially. So, there was no, nothing substantial on security and defence in the TCA, um, uh, and that was at John's, Johnson's insistence. Um, since then, of course, yeah, things things have moved on, and and. Um, I I think it might be overstating it to call it a game-changer but Ukraine has been extremely significant there's no question and the end of Johnson's Premiership was another marker we can forget about trust she was only there for 49 days Um, but when Sunak came in it was fairly clear that there was a reset going on Uh, Sunak is is more uh, diplomatic uh, he avoids the inflammatory language that people like Truss and Johnson um, were 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 well known for. Um, Truss, I seem to remember, even hesitated on the question whether Macron was friend or foe. You know, it was that bad. So when when Sunak came in, it was not difficult for him to 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 be much more engaging as far as. Brussels was concerned, and that proved to be the case. There seemed to be a a much warmer dynamic between him and Macron. That's the second time I've mentioned Macron, because he's obviously a major player in in this relationship. So there has been a reset, particularly as I say around Ukraine, and that's because the the disastrous invasion of Ukraine in 2022 has uh, not only been Pivotal in focusing minds in NATO, in in European capitals, including London, on the enormity of this crisis, and the uh, clear alignment between London and European Union interests on how to respond to this, and there has been substantial cooperation, particularly on sanctions and on uh, 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 ammunition supplies to Ukraine. There's been been uh, a high level of in- engagement between the two. And um, although the UK has led on arming Ukraine from the European side, leaving aside America as, as being the largest contributor on the European side the the UK has 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 been the lead contributor and of course that's that's gone gone well in in terms of how it's been received in in other European capitals obviously Paris so um, in this respect yes there's there's a much greater willingness to recognize shared interests and the effectiveness or better efficiency in coordinating the response.
1: Uh, Would you, just to pick up on an issue, you would not rate the Johnson administration's attempt to broaden out that relationship because that security agreement with Sweden and Finland initially didn't seem to be that important but became increasingly important when Turkey and indeed Hungary decided to object to joining. Uh, or Sweden and Finland to join NATO, so I am just wondering, yeah. you, how would you read that? Because you're very I would, much pivoting
0: towards Sunak being the... I, I, would, I would recognise Johnson's interest in bilateral arrangements with uh, Finland and Sweden, but it was almost, to me, it came across as a political move. I'm not doubting that the UK and even Johnson were fully committed to uh, a security alignment with Sweden and, and Finland as potential at this time, potential NATO members. But I think it was important that as far as Johnson was concerned, the messaging was in bilateral relations with capitals rather than a UK-EU tie-up. Mm-hmm. That's the way I would have interpreted that.
1: Mm-hmm. And we, before recording, kind of... On whether or not there may be a, a Labour government on the way. Um, the polls certainly indicate that, yeah. but of course, you never know, mm. or it's still a year out. But we have had perhaps some rumblings as to where Labour would go in terms of reaching a closer relationship with the United Kingdom, or with mm. the European Union, excuse me. Um, I'm wondering, where do you think that relationship? will be in terms of defence then. Okay. Do, you, do you see that there is going to be perhaps something that the Labour Party can do, because we know traditionally the Conservatives are yeah. against this type of deeper integration in general, and more specifically on defence, and Labour perhaps more willing to, to to do something on that front?
0: My reading of, of, of Labour is that, yeah, according to John Curtis, and he's the expert, uh, and there's a very strong likelihood that Labour will have a majority after the next election, probably in autumn next year 2024 and Labour have already indicated that they would want a reset on relations with the European Union towards a more pragmatic more uh, open conversation in in various areas although clearly they're not being specific in which areas or how to establish this better working relationship. Um, On security and defence Labour have indicated that very soon, presumably very quickly after uh, forming a government, Labour would want to re-establish a formal security and defence agreement with the European Union to to facilitate greater institutional cooperation in in that more formal capacity. Whereas under the Conservatives, should the Conservatives um, um, form a new government after the next election. As I say, it's not expected, but if they were to do so, I think we would see a continuation or continuity from the Sunak administration of a kind of incremental uh, realignment, not, not, maybe that's putting it too strongly, but a, a, an increasing conversation and increasing areas of cooperation, even under a conservative government led by, for example, Sunak, if he were to win an election. But let's face it, the polls indicate that that's unlikely. So it would be Labour, and I would see much more than an incremental uh, increase. I would see something more specific happening quite soon. So
1: perhaps not a San Malmo declaration, but something perhaps closer to the UK's involvement, maybe. In the strategic compass, but I'll get to it in a moment.
0: Not exactly a San Malmo, no. Uh, I don't think I think Labour would would not want to um, be 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 quite so outspoken in whatever new arrangement they would make. But I, I think there would be there would be uh, something more formal than than simply having more conversations.
1: And stepping away from the I suppose UK new relationship for just one moment. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, of course, in relation to the Strategic Compass. And I was just wondering, uh, perhaps you can just tell yeah. me a little bit about it. And then also, in terms of, is this simply just a mirror image of NATO? Can it really exist beside NATO? Mm. Or, indeed, is this very much something that is orientated to for, to interests for France? So, French defence industry interest, French foreign policy interest. How, would you, how do you view this? What the Strategic
0: the... Compass was released in March 2022, i.e., Within weeks of the Russian invasion, mm-hmm. and in I think it was in sixty-six pages, Russia got mentioned twenty times. So uh, the invasion f- f- focused minds and brought Russia very much into into the conversation around the Strategic Compass. So what was it? The Strategic Compass is is an updating, if you like, of the EU Global Strategy of twenty sixteen. It attempts to push forward a more coordinated, more integrated European Union engagement in the field of security and defense. And it emphasizes partnership, partnership with NATO, partnership with the OSCE, and partnership with third states. Fine. But what the strategic compass is, is, is about, even more concretely, is about raising capacity. Raising the EU level capability to make that effective contribution to European defence, not merely security. So there's there's a security angle in there on, for example, cyber security, but the defence element has to do with capability in terms of military hardware. And it's a the strategic compass. The strategic compass is a is a is a literally a call to arms that the European Union and its member states must step up in terms of their capability so they can make a more effective contribution to NATO as a European Union, an integrated bloc and as 27 member states. So how effective will it be? The strategic compass is in a long line of EU policy statements or rhetoric if you like on increasing capacity. European Defence Agency was established in 2007 specifically to address issues of capability and efficiency within the um, relationships and the procurement policies and the industrial development of military capability. That's been the task of the EDA since 2007, but it's the EDA as an agency has always struggled to really get compliance from all the member states, some more than others. Obviously France is, is, is the biggest player here. Um, Germany has, has increased its, its involvement in defense manufacturing uh, over the course of several years. Uh, this is true. But what the EDA is still pushing for is common procurement policies, common research and development, better articulation between systems so that one system works for all member states rather than each member state having its own system whether you're talking about you know frigates or aircraft or whatever it is the ideal would be that there's a kind of European pan-european pan-european union engagement in these projects so within the strategic compass there's a call for the more effective application of permanent structured cooperation PESCO. PESCO is a framework within which member states can cooperate on research and development and and the, the, the generation of military capability. The problem with PESCO it was envisaged way back at the signing of the Lisbon Treaty in 2007 but it only became activated in 2016, incidentally after the um, UK's referendum on EU membership. PESCO has been reasonably successful, let me put it that way. It it now consists of 68 projects, which sounds good, but where it lacks is full-on strategic capability, big-ticket items. The largest project at the moment under uh, Pesco is the European military mobility, which is indeed substantial uh, and has to do with the 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 movement of 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 forces of member states to areas of areas of need. Um, So it's 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 important, but outside of Pesco for the moment, are other major. Uh, projects like, 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 for example, uh, missile defence or new aircraft systems. And that's maybe a weakness within PESCO that the strategic compass would like to deal with. So the strategic compass is, 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 is demanding a much greater level of European integration and European commitment between member states, common policy integrated policy, um, commitment to the European defence technological industrial base, this is proving difficult because there are French interests at play, there are German interests at play, they're not always aligned.
1: Indeed and that is something in terms of which we approach this uh, final question here, I mean we talk about that defence collaboration but there is an inherent weakness here firstly in terms of European defence. Firstly, you don't have the United States wielding a big stick, so at least trying to get member states to hit that 2% NATO target. I mean, we simply don't have that actor mm. within strategic Compass mm-hmm. or in the European Union. Yeah. And then, second of all, I mean, we have those laggards. Germany is a laggard when it comes to defence. I mean, it's certainly, despite that big speech by Schulz in the Bundestag, he has, and his coalition government are now already fiddling around with this 2% target. So my first question then is, how have realistic is it to have this European defense agency, which has all of these national interests versus US defense industry, which okay has state interests. You do have that pork barrel politics, but nonetheless It's much more easier to push through defense projects defense collaboration, etc. And then second of all, do you think that there is a risk for the UK here? I mean becoming strategic are becoming involved in the strategic competence and greater defense collaboration. I mean, who is going to pay the nuclear umbrella? I mean, it's simply going to be the UK taxpayers doing what the US taxpayers do for NATO.
0: I think think in terms of defense spending, uh, all member states, my personal view is that they should step up and not only meet the 2% target, but probably go beyond it. If we go back to the Cold War, Uh, it was usual for um, European NATO members to be spending over 3%. And following the end of the Cold War, there were significant reductions, and Germany fell to about 1.1%. And then, as you say, with Schultz's Zeitenwender after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, there was a commitment to raise German spending to 2.1% which the German national security strategy has backtracked on, the, on this so that the 2% commitment now is to be met over the period of five years as opposed to immediately year on year. And that's, that's, that is in, indeed, a, I wouldn't call it a U-turn, but it's a sort of um, lessening of commitment to what was announced in the Zeitenwender speech by Scholz. So, um, Schultz is in a difficult position because he leads a coalition, Free Democrats are uh, pretty oppositional within the coalition, so uh, there's also the issue of German, Germany's historical reluctance to engage with a high level of defense commitment, but it is happening, there is a change, um, 2% is a lot for Germany, and in real terms will be a substantial amount of money spent on defence. Which, given the history, okay, it's taken seven decades to o- overcome the German reluctance, and throughout much of that seven, years, Germany, uh, seven decades Germany has been effectively pacifist. So, this is why the change is indeed, in my view, highly substantial. in in the German rhetoric but also in the German um, uh, ambition to hit that 2% target it's very significant so against that there is the industrial interests that are too often competitive rather than collaborative between particularly France and Germany and we see this in the um, future combat air system that the two uh, lead developers on where the major companies involved are so in Fran- France and Airbus Defence Space, uh, Airbus Defence and Space in in, in Germany, have have um, much disagreement between them on on the uh, development of this project, and I would also add to that the unfortunate reality that this future combat air system is being developed alongside a rival competitor project, the Global Combat Air Programme which is headed by the UK, Italy and Japan. So there are two air systems in development within the European space and this is clearly not too clever where resources are limited and research and development would be much more effective if it was fully integrated in one system rather than two competitive systems. So the two are in some sort of a race and the, 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 the winner of the race in terms of development, in terms of actually getting the project um, uh, up and running will will be in, in a strong position but it would be a lot quicker and a lot more efficient and cost a lot less and probably end up with a better product if this was a genuine cooperative, collaborative uh, initiative and at the moment I think it's handicapped by, by this lack of joint endeavour. Um, another significant project that's going on at, a, at the European level is the European Patrol Corvette, the EPC, which uh, is an Italian, French, Spanish, um, collaboration uh, again the UK is not part of this I think that this again is a loss because obviously the UK is a would have a great deal to offer on any any naval um, capacity development so it, it, it undermines these common uh, endeavors when there are competitive systems uh, on the blocks. Well, firstly,
1: I want to thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Simon Sweeney from the University of York, for joining me here. Today on this uh, podcast for the Deed of Brussels, uh, which you can find, of course, on Twitter, uh, our Twitter handle, Deal of Brussels, also on Spotify as well, here at the uh, UAC's annual conference 2023 in Belfast. So we're on the road uh, with this podcast series. So thank you very much indeed for the time that you gave today. Greatly appreciate it and of huge interest, of course, to our listeners as well. So Thank you very much. Thank
0: you very much for inviting me. I'm very glad to uh, participate. Thank you.